0: A Start On Demand demand.
1: A Canadian veteran is at war with her own military and the government who are refusing to pay for her prosthetic leg even though she lost the leg in a crash while she was in uniform. Mayor Brian Bowman sits down with us to chat about the meth crisis in our city and what can we do to make Winnipeg Transit better. And finally, we're going to head to Utah to tell you about the Reply all I'm Brett McGarry from Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the podcast for the start. This
0: Next story we're going to share with you and start this hour is not humorous in any way, Lorraine McNabb.
2: No, this is about a veteran's push to get medical coverage for her prosthetic leg, and it's hit a really frustrating, and I would say an infuriating wall. Air Force Captain Kimberly Fawcett was involved in a horrific car crash in 2006 while she was in uniform. Her infant son was killed in that crash. Kimberly lost a leg. Documents obtained by Global News show that she was doing her duty at the time, but the military, the government, is refusing to pay for that prosthetic limb. This despite the fact she's since gone on to serve in Afghanistan with that prosthetic limb. Here's Global's Mercedes Stevenson with more. I had
3: kissed my little boy and on the cheek and said, don't worry, Karen, mommy loves you.
4: In her final tender moments with her nine-month-old baby boy, Kimberly Fawcett tried to reassure her son he was safe. After spinning out on an icy highway, the Air Force captain rescued her son from his car seat and moved to the safety of the ditch. Moments later, the mother and son were struck by a speeding truck that had gone off the road. And the
3: button to my combat pant got caught in the grill of the vehicle, and I had Kieran in my arms.
4: Fawcett was dragged under the wheels, tearing off her leg at the hip. Kieran was thrown from her arms into the path of an 18-wheeler truck. He died instantly.
3: And I touched his hand, and I just looked at the padre, and I said to him, Padre, he needs a blanket, because he's cold. It just still didn't fathom that he was going away and he wasn't coming back.
4: Today, Fawcett continues to serve in the military, competing in the Invictus Games for injured veterans. She even deployed to Afghanistan, the only Canadian woman to serve in the war zone with a prosthetic limb. But Fawcett says her continued service and dedication have been met with betrayal.
3: It's been ten years of absolute hell.
4: The military has refused to pay for Fawcett's prosthetic limb, denying she was on duty at the time of the accident. Yet documents obtained by Global News show the initial military investigation determined that Fawcett was on duty. A later review by a two-star general stated Fawcett was driving her son to his grandparents at the time of the accident. That was part of a contingency plan the military required because both Fawcett and her husband could be deployed overseas at a moment's notice and at the same time. The military overturned the report's finding and refused to cover the cost of Fawcett's prosthetic leg. That decision triggered Veterans Affairs to deny her claim too.
3: It was coming down to points of semantics. So it wasn't points of honor, duty, loyalty. It was like All of that was thrown out the window.
4: Captain Fawcett is fighting the federal government to pay for her prosthetic leg in court, but she hopes tonight the Minister of National Defence will hear her appeal. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa.
1: I just googled, what does it cost? to pay for a prosthetic leg. What does a prosthetic leg cost? And the, the first hit, and I'd have to look into it closer, but $5,000 to $50,000. We're not talking about a lot of money here for this person who served our country. But
2: even if we are, say it's several times a year that needs changes, that needs new limbs, fix this. She she should not have to go to court to appeal something that they owe her. Fix this. This is out. Like, I couldn't listen to this story without being, first of all, crying because that poor family, and they go and serve this country, and both her and her husband or in the military. And then the the most terrible thing happens to you is to lose your child. It's And then to have this thrown on top of that, it's egregious. Like it's, it's awful.
0: She used the words honor, duty and loyalty. These shouldn't even have had to come into play in terms of this decision, in terms of the logistics involved and the plan that her and her husband needed to have because of being a part of this special unit. It was very clear what needed to to be done, what would happen in a situation where she was being deployed. And that was the act she was in when this horrific accident happened. She was taking her son to her parents so that she could serve our country. Not only did she lose her son and subsequently lose her leg in this accident, but she is being met with resistance, a callousness. That I can't even imagine you would find within a private insurance company, where the mantra is deny, deny, deny. Where and then she's where, serving. where are we she's going? Still continuing
2: here. to serve. What a what an amazing soldier to have that commitment to the military that hasn't shown the same commitment to her. This is
0: deplorable. This is. Awful uh, decision making, horrendous uh, judgment on the part of Veterans Affairs. Never mind what's right, what's loyal, and 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 is is moral uh, to the letter of what should have been done here in terms of logistics and and, and following the letter of of of. Every law and every rule within the military here, it sounds as as though this woman has done nothing but,
1: and this is the answer she gets. Makes you wonder why anybody would join our military the way that uh, the government treats its veterans. You can weigh in at 204-780-6868. Scott saying the damage done by her treatment by the military is worse than the horrific accident that put her in this situation. You can also email Mackling at CJOB.com, McGarry at CJOB.com, or McNab at CJOB.com. Hackling McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB, Jeff Forte is here, Jeff Braun is here, Kelly Moore is here, and we've been hearing in Global News with Jeff Braun, and yesterday as well, Manitoba Public Insurance says most vehicle thefts involve the keys. So we're talking about our car key misadventures. Have you ever lost them, locked them in the car, or maybe had other misadventures? I know that I've got a story involving something stupid I did with my car key, but... uh, Kelly, you ever no, 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 no.
5: Don't keep us waiting.
1: Let's yeah? go. Right okay. now. <laughs> the, the story involves I had a, I drove a 2007 Honda Civic and I left my lived with my buddy Mike at the time and I was going to see my girlfriend and I pulled my key out of my pocket and you guys know I have allergies so I always have a big wad of Kleenex in my pocket so I went to put the key into the ignition and just as I put it in I noticed there was something on the edge of the key, the tip of the key. It was just a little tiny piece of Kleenex that had ripped off of one but it was enough to jam the ignition. <laughs> oh no. So I couldn't so oh, I, I wow. couldn't get the key <laughs> all the way in, but then it was stuck. So I had to abandon I couldn't drive anywhere. I had to get the car towed I think to Canadian Tire. They were able to they were able to like ram the key in and start it and then I immediately drove it to the dealership and they couldn't pull the key out, (laughs) they had to pull out the entire ignition lock. Come on. It was like a $600 job, and they warrantied it. Oh, that was Birchwood well, Honda back then. That's lucky, because yeah.
2: what an error to caught me. Be so <laughs> mad Holy about man. that. Yeah.
1: Oh. and it was such a... I couldn't believe it. a little tiny piece of Kleenex wrecked my ignition lock. So, whoops. When, there, did you say Canadian Tire? Who'd you go to first? I first went to Canadian Tire. They, they, I had a toad there. Yeah, and then as soon as they they got it fixed, actually, you no, know pardon me. I was I was going to take it to Canadian Tire. The tow truck driver was able to to ram it in, and then I drove it to. uh to Honda. That's right.
2: Well, I was in university I, through Canadian Tire had a program kind of like CAA where they'd come help out with yeah. your car and so uh, my dad had paid for it for one of the years and thank God he did because I locked my keys in the car so many times that the Canadian <laughs> Tire guy knew <laughs> my name. Like, he knew me by name. He was like, Hi, hey, man, where are you today? I was like, I'm outside my house and I couldn't get in. I'm all once again sweaty and just like oh. yeah, like embarrassing. And wow. then my dad canceled that program and I really had to get myself together. Like Yep.
5: I often wonder how can such a brilliant journalist
2: live? <laughs> stay alive? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Be such yeah. a forgetful oh, fanny. I'm I mean, the
2: worst. <laughs> I am the
1: worst, Kelly. Uh, You've learned that. Brian, you yeah. ever lock your keys in your car or no? Lose them? I did the opposite, but it worked out. It's, it's a weird story. Uh my car had been stolen. And they'd screwed around with the lock. You know how they do stuff like that. And then a couple years later, the inside of the door panel on my old Neon came loose. And it got very, very stuck to the point where you couldn't open the driver's side door at all. So I was for a few weeks, I was climbing in through the passenger side because I didn't want to get it fixed.
2: Like a Dukes of Hazard. Did I you was, have like a move oh, going on? I later like,
1: just smashed it and drilled it. Oh. put all these holes in my car on myself. But for a while, their driver's side door wouldn't open no matter what. Somebody came and tried to break in because I saw a bunch of brand new little like screwdriver marks all by the keyhole and stuff. So, But they couldn't get in because the door wouldn't open. <laughs> but I had left the passenger side unlocked. They could have gone around and got in easily like that and stolen my car again, but they never did. Wow, Kelly. Oh, you
5: thwarted them. First day of holidays. Haven't even made it out of town. Stop at McDonald's to have something to eat. I I can't remember how old the girls were, but they weren't very old at that time. So, you know, we clean off the table, dump our garbage into the garbage can, get out to the car, and you know where this one's going. Yeah. Keys were on one of the trays. Okay. Okay. I can't remember if we had a backup set of keys and we just said to heck with it and used that (laughs) and and drove off. Or I do remember searching through the garbage. My wife says, for God's sakes, they're going to think you're digging for food. Get out of there. (laughs) Well, You
2: you have Uh, to explain that. That's an expensive, like if you have to go on your trip, you would delay everything. It's like that scene from Parenthood. I think
5: think we had the the spare set of keys, but yeah, uh, because I don't think we ever found them.
1: Forte.
2: Well, for me, I lose my keys, but I not outside the house. I lose them inside the house, so I'm going to go searching for them. But I found out if I take my spare set of keys and I turn on my car, my original, my main set of keys actually beeps five times. So oh. I've I, I learned that I can use that. So you know when I've lost my keys is when my car is turning off,
6: turning on, turning off, turning on, <laughs> and there's me running around, running around the place trying to look for my keys.
2: Wow. Oh boy, Jeff and I should never, ever, ever go on a trip together. Would we won't, just, we uh, won't get don't
1: get very far. Don't you have the key spot where you just keep them all the time so you never lose them? Yeah, well, I usually do. I usually sense.
2: do, but I, I end up, you know, sometimes leaving my jacket pocket, and mm. I have like five different jackets. So,
1: well, that's Break. actually a question of the day at cjob. com. <laughs> We're wondering where do you keep your car keys? And so far, I'm just pulling up the results now. You can. The options are by the front or back door, in my purse or coat. So purse or coat, fifty percent, thirty eight percent, front or back door, and twelve percent say I have a spare in the car. And we actually have a listener a spare who spare in the car. Yeah, and Adam says I lock my keys in the or uh, let's see here. What does oh. that help if it's in the car? I locked my keys in the truck
0: after I put my kids in their car seats, man, did I panic? I ended up busting out my driver's side window. Yeah, I've done that. To get at them. You've done that? (laughs) What
2: else? Name it. With keys, I've done it. Craig, don't get off your high horse. Where are your keys? Always uh, organized?
0: No, I have a whole list of key misfortunes. I couldn't even pick one.
1: Oh, well, we'll have to then sprinkle them in throughout the show. I have like
0: nine of them. Give me one. I lost my brother's keys to his Mustang once. I lost the keys to my MG on a sleigh ride once. Uh, I lost the keys for a rental car on my uncle's boat in Salmon Arm once. I, I could go on.
1: Got an email yesterday from one of our colleagues in Toronto. And it's the subject is Lost Hat. And as soon as I saw the subject, I thought, oh boy... And it's addressed to all Chorus Radio AM. So every employee who works for a Chorus AM radio station in Canada got this email. (laughs) And it simply says, it is a nice hat found sad and lonely on the floor. Now at my desk. Send description to prove it is yours and you can get it back. This is from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. So I think, why did she send this to everyone? And I couldn't resist the urge to reply. And I said, should I reply? And Greg says, you should say this. So I did. And I said in a reply saying, to everyone, I replied all, saying, is it a 2019 Winnipeg Jets Stanley Cup (laughs) champions hat? If so, it's mine, Brett in Winnipeg. So she replies all saying, oh no, I'm so sorry. I meant to only send it to Toronto. I never used this system. My apologies. And it is not that hat. Good luck finding it.
7: <laughs> it's,
2: it's missing the whole point of a 2019 Stanley 2019 yeah, yeah, like Cup nice
1: day to get our
0: friends in Toronto, but uh, hopefully somebody caught on to that.
2: And the reply alls, it just comes back to something that is, that carpet email going out and then everyone's need To reply all to the whole thing is so frustrating. But then, Brett, which was funny because this happened to you yesterday, and then you found something even better that happened in Utah, was it?
1: It it was in Utah, and if you just Google Utah potluck reply all, you'll get all (laughs) kinds of stories. But here's a—I think this one is the one I enjoy the most from the New York Times. What happens when you reply all to over 22,000 state workers? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Subject, hashtag reply allpocalypse. To all readers at NewYorkTimes.com, Reply All, the scourge that has afflicted (laughs) office workers everywhere has hit 22,000 government employees in Utah, demonstrating that decades into the invention of email, many of us still don't understand its etiquette. This is a public advisory. Please do not reply all. For at least 20 years now, emailers everywhere have received those pesky group messages, and for at least 20 years, they have tried to resist the allure of the reply-all button. They have often failed, with the first messengers asking to be removed from a list, the second group pointing out that the first group should really stop emailing everyone, and the third group deciding now is just the right moment to show off their wit.
2: (laughs) That's exactly what happens. You're either, like, angry for the reply-all... Or you want to point it out, or you just, like I did this yesterday, I replied all to something, didn't mean to, then continued to reply all, because I knew it was just kind of a jerk thing to do, and I found it funny, even though I know that that's driving people crazy. So, so why?
1: Which brings us to Maria Peterson in Utah's pre-holiday Reply all apocalypse, <laughs> or Potluck Gate, or Reply All-Madness. The state's internet pundits, including Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, are all over this. (laughs) This is real, and it's an emergency, Mr. Cox deadpanned on Twitter on Friday. I fear it will never end. So Ms. Peterson, 37, deputy director in the job training section at the Utah Department of Corrections, on Friday she sends out this calendar invite for her division's annual potluck. It was meant for 80 people, but someone in the technology department had been tinkering with her email A variation of everyone at utah.gov, and suddenly the invitation went to more than 22,000 guests. That's nearly every employee in Utah's government. So there proceeded from there an onslaught of emails, people replying. I thought, I think you added the wrong Becky to your contact list. Uh, Read the message, stop replying all. Please bring a $5 white elephant gift. And then an unnamed writer in tax waivers saying simply, stop the madness. But yeah, can you imagine an email going out? You meant to send it to 80 people, and it goes out to 22,000 people.
0: Now you know why people are hesitant (laughs) to reply all when they should be replying all for fear of something exactly like that or, or a version thereof.
1: Mayor Brian Bowman yeah. nice joining us live in studio. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. Looking forward to the holidays. I'm and, sure. Uh, just careful driving outside, though, if you're coming in, working you know, on all kinds of text messages about slippery roads and foggy conditions. Watch out for deer and all that. How was your yeah. ride in?
6: Uh, it was slippery. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I left a little bit early just to uh, make sure I got here safely. So, uh, yeah, just encourage everybody also just take time, try to leave a little bit early, and be patient with each other when you're on the roads.
2: Well, we're always uh, anxious to hear what's coming next when it comes to one of the big issues that's been talked about repeatedly in the city. And that, of course, is, is math. And I know yesterday mm-hmm. you took your case to Ottawa, uh, spoke via teleconference to the committee there to, to sort of share what's been going on in Winnipeg. We've talked about it mm-hmm. ad nauseum, and we've used the word crisis. And one thing that keeps coming up is the question of, okay, we know there's a problem, but are we dealing with this like it is a crisis? Do you think we're responding appropriately, whether it's the mayor of Winnipeg, the premier of the province or the federal government? Are we failing right now?
6: Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's more that needs to be done uh, by all levels of government. And so the the response has been, it, it's been inadequate. I mean, you just, you, you have to only talk to uh, those that are on the front lines to know that a lot more needs to be done. And there's been some positive steps in, in recent weeks by both federal and provincial governments. And, um, you know I commend them for for taking those actions obviously we we want to see a lot more and we'll be there to support those efforts uh, as best we can as a municipal government
2: as a municipal government and I think the buck I don't want to say the bucks getting passed because I know it's a it's a trilateral. Issue we got health. We've got policing and all the rest. But just as the mayor of Winnipeg, is there something specific that you can do as a city hall right now that would help address this problem beyond just the borders or the talk about treatment yep. beds for Methodics? Like what can the city do to start cracking down on this while we wait for everybody else to do something else? Well, there's a
6: few things that we're already doing. I mean, one is the Winnipeg Police Service has initiated their illicit drug strategy, which has a three prong approach dealing with education, enforcement and intervention. Uh, we've made available lands for extra treatment with the uh, Bruce Oak Memorial Recovery Center, um, and uh, and we're continuing to uh, to press our case with other levels of government that have both the resources and the mandate for uh, for health services. And so, and we're going to continue to be open to to how how more what more can we do. I mean, the uh, Mitchell Fabrics Building, of course, the Main Street Project—they're doing great work and uh, fully support their expansion plans. Uh, we'll continue to be partners with with organizations where we can help. But this is an issue where. Um, you know, you talk about you know passing the buck and 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 really the the finger pointing that happens uh, at times. This is a this is an issue where we everybody needs to kind of put the swords down and and focus on the people who need the help the most. Um, it, this this isn't this shouldn't be a political issue, <laughs> and uh, I know that might seem odd coming from a politician, but we really need to just sit down in the room, find out what resources are there, listen to those with lived experience and, and that are on the front lines because those answers of what we need to do, do are well known. We need more supports for mental health, addictions and homelessness. Uh, we do need to beef up uh, border security to stop the flow of of meth into the country. Um, but as long as the demand is there, you know, the supply, whether it's meth or some other drug, uh, you know, we, we have folks who, who need help in our community and, and we should be we should be doing what we do in Winnipeg best It's by working together. And so I've been trying to facilitate that dialogue between federal and provincial governments so we can find ways of working together and supporting each other.
0: So we only have so much time with you. So apologies, we could do this entire segment on on meth. Uh, But another, I would call it an emergency is the safety of our transit operators. And some would be asking what's taking so long and trying to find or Implementing a solution to keep our transit operators safer. Are we any closer to that, Mayor Bowman?
6: Yeah, I mean we have taken steps, and we're going to continue to to uh, to work with the transit advisory committee. This was called called for by the union; uh, they're a part of it, and uh, and they, we've implemented hundred percent of their recommendations to date. There is a lot more that has to be done, and will be done. Um, right now, we're focused on implementing those recommendations uh, that that beef up security. That have tested, of course, the uh, the safety shields and uh you can expect to see this as a as an area of focus in the upcoming budget as well and the dialogue is continuing with the transit advisory committee in the uh in the meantime
0: when are we going to get the sense that tri- transits become a priority again because i've asked you this before yeah. but i'm going to ask it again you know a lot of people the provincial government i think sees transit as an obligation you've said that yeah. it's a priority for you when are we going to get that sense as a public because i think a majority of people look at this and go yeah you are just providing uh, the bare bones service at this point
6: well i mean right now we've we've consolidated a number of the these studies that were were ongoing they're kind of operating in silos there's rapid transit of course there's other studies that were going uh, going on uh, previous council to 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 its credit uh, consolidated and so there is an operational review that's underway right now that will better align investments in Rapid transit, you know, the the regular transit, uh, also look at further electrification of the fleet, look at uh, improved safety and, of course, uh, high frequency networks. Which, how about
0: fare collection, which is a huge issue right yeah, now?
6: Well, and, and, I mean, continued improvements in that regard as well. Um, so, I mean, it is, I, I, I think during this term of office, that is, and I've been communicating this to members of council as well. If there's one issue that I think we're going to have to be willing to uh, make tough decisions to really Improve transit. I mean, it, it hasn't had a full kind of review like this in a generation. I mean, I've been riding. I'm in Charleswood. I, I've been riding the 66 my whole life. The routes haven't really changed much. It's it's the transit service of of your grandma or grandpa. And so we have to be uh, prepared to take some some political risks to 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 shake things up for the better. Uh, the key is going to be how we do it, of course, to make sure that it's it. There's smart decisions. Um, but when we're talking about substantive changes to something like transit, um, the, the elected officials need to brace themselves for the fact that change brings opposition at times. And we need to be prepared to to really think long term for transit, uh, well beyond a, a, a term in office.
2: You mentioned we've been talking about this, the roots are the same as the ones you drove. Greg said this the other day, that it feels the like it's the cars. same. So when? When is yeah. that review done so that we can start moving forward? Because sometimes it starts to feel like we... Over consult on things, and then decisions never get made.
6: Yeah, on this one, I mean, we're expecting in uh, in 2019. Um, that's that's the the current uh, the current timing that uh, that I've been advised on. Uh, the sooner, the better, because uh, I mean, the the debates uh, when we take a look at making substantive changes. I mean, the direction that was provided to our public services. Imagine that there there were no transit service right now, and you were looking at the state of the city now, not in 1970 or the 1960, but right now. Where do people live? Where's the demand? Uh, how do we use uh, the scarce dollars we have more efficiently to move people around? Because the importance of transit um, is is only going to grow as the city grows. We don't have freeways. We don't have subways. As we grow, I mean, fifty two thousand more more new net residents in the last term of office. We're only going to keep growing. And you know, while we've been debating potholes over the last four years. We are throwing a lot of resources at fixing the roads. And I think Winnipegers are seeing the roads go in the right direction. What what we need to do is turn our attention to, to gridlock. And that means public transit and active transportation have, have increasingly larger roles in building a city that's growing uh, as time goes on. So you can expect to see. We're going to be debating and discussing transit a lot over the coming year and years.
1: Mayor Brian Bowman joining us live in studio. Thank you very much for the visit. Thanks. Have a great day. And right now in studio, we welcome our friend Charlene Van Buchenhout, Dalnavert Museum Programming and Marketing Director for Something Cool, starting tomorrow and going through the weekend, just in time for the holidays. Charlene, how's it going?
7: I'm well. How are you?
1: Doing okay. Thanks for coming back to see us. I'm always
7: happy to be here.
1: Miracle on 34th Street, a radio play. You did did something similar last year, right?
7: That's right. Uh, Last year we did uh, It's a Wonderful Life radio play uh, because um, it's being done somewhere else at a different theater this year, uh, we chose uh, to go ahead and do a different holiday classic, Miracle on 34th Street, the story of um, who is the real Santa Claus.
1: Okay, so yeah. uh, so how does it work? Like, uh, did, Are you pulling it like from an original script of a radio player, or did you do your own? Uh,
7: it's actually a transcription from, um, it's an old transcription from... Uh, created from the movie. So uh, someone sat down and did a radio version and then they did it on the radio. So we have that transcription. And, um, and we took it, and it comes with commercials and uh, for Lux uh, Diamond Flake soap. <laughs> really? Like yeah. 25 cents or something like that? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. they have all these things about um, how amazing the soap is, and you can make um, Christmas decorations with it and things like that. Any, and any
1: cigarette ads? Like, Marlboro cigarettes, it'll put hair on your chest, see?
7: <laughs> Almost. I think we cut one or two things just for <laughs> timeliness. Uh, it's so much fun. Uh, we have a pianist. Who uh, plays holiday music during the the show? And we have a sound foley artist who um who uh, puts you know does the phones pickups and the door slams and cool. the jingle bells oh, throughout. Fun. So this yeah. is
2: kind of harkens. <laughs> I can't believe I just used that word, but mm. but it harkens back to a time when this was so popular, right? The before film and all the rest, you would turn on the radio and hear an entire production go on for hours, and you would listen to it like a play, but without any visuals.
7: It's fascinating. Yeah, and you have to use your imagination, and the sound helps uh, so much. So last year, a lot of people you could see in the audience were just sitting there with their eyes closed, just imagining um, what was happening. So it was uh, it was it was so much. Um, Real, that that makes it real. Yeah, makes it real.
0: yeah. Well, I was imagining the audience, sort of, uh, la The Voice on NBC, oh. with their backs turned <laughs> to the to the stage, so to speak, so that you you could totally lose yourself in the production itself. I you love can. radio plays. I love old time radio. And Lorraine, you, you you just you painted that picture of, you know, that word, harken, and people would come, the family would come into the living room, right? You'd have, I'm picturing a fire's roaring, that great big uh, standing radio. The radio pe- was huge. It was gigantic, yeah. right? And, and you, you the kids sitting on the floor cross-legged and, and the parents on the couch, because we all know that couches are not for kids, they are yeah. for adults. <laughs> for
7: adults, yeah. And everyone gathers around and sits either staring at the radio or um, with their eyes closed listening. It's like the TV. Uh, and it's not Victorian, and Delinvert Museum is Victorian Museum, but it does um, it does go with our storytelling theme this year. So uh, we have a lot of storytelling uh, stuff going on in December, and then this is just kind of a, a f- say future version of um, what they would have done in Victorian era. Anyway, sitting around with people telling stories uh, in front of the fire. Uh, and now you have whole productions on the radio sitting in front of the fire and listening to that as well.
1: How many people are involved in the play?
7: There's about nine. Okay. About nine. And you were supposed to have Brett, right? We were supposed to have Mm. Brett. We didn't get Brett. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I'm sorry. Because I mentioned to you last year that I'd like to participate if possible. And you you followed up. You you, you held up your end of the bargain. And I just was unavailable. It's happening uh, Thursday, tomorrow, December 13th. Uh, Friday and Saturday, 7 p.m. Showtime. And I just, I already had commitments. So I'm really sorry I couldn't make it because it sounds wild.
7: Yeah, it's going to be so much fun. And, you know, we'll probably keep doing it. It's become very popular. And um, maybe we can get all of you next year. I'll just try to get. uh, Oh, wow. Let's just, we'll just commit now.
0: (laughs) I'm in.
2: Sure. I'm in. Great. Last year you did It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Uh, This year is The Miracle on 34th Street. You're you're picking certain certain types, obviously, for the season, Mm -hmm. but they're also those older films.
7: Uh, Or plays. Yes, of course, there's tons. Uh, I know that uh, one of our um, actors in the show uh, really wants us to do War of the Worlds. Um, if you recall, that's mm-hmm. when, uh, Orson Welles, uh, tricked everyone in the country <laughs> with yeah. his uh, oh, famous. <laughs> radio program. Yeah. So there's tons of radio stuff to be done and I think we're all really excited about doing that again.
1: Now do the, 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 the people, the voice actors, will they be speaking into microphones or are they just sitting around a table with a script in front of them?
7: No, we've got microphones, uh, music stands, um, yeah, everything you could want to look at when you see a, think of a radio play.
1: I love it. It sounds
0: fantastic. And I have to applaud you for the efforts you're going to, to not only make, to bring this home alive and to bring this museum uh, to the masses, because if they don't come to you, you sort of have to. You sort of have to alter your approach and and open doors and bring people in for other reasons so they can discover this magnificent structure in our downtown.
7: Yeah, that's what we like to do. Um, All of the programming is about bringing people in to discover the museum um, in whatever way we can, try to tie it to the Victorian era. But even if we don't with this radio play, uh, we can still tie it to our storytelling theme and like classic holiday um, films and uh, fun and festive season stuff.
1: Well, I went to the the Dracula show that you had over Halloween right. and it was really cool. It was my first time at Dalnavert Museum and just being in the home is amazing. It's such a big old, neat old place and then getting to interact with the property in a respectful way, of course. Mm-hmm. You're very clear on what we were allowed to touch <laughs> and what we were not allowed to touch and... Uh, yeah, I was really impressed, especially with the the show you put on at the end. Of the sound system was amazing. I was not expecting that. So,
7: well, you must come back and see the museum in the day or with the lights on, um, because Dracula had all the lights off. But with the lights on and all the festive decor, we have a real tree in the parlor. It's balsam fir, and it smells amazing mm. right now. Oh, and mistletoe. Great. You of have to watch course. for. It. Oof. Yeah.
1: <laughs> McNabs out
7: I just want
2: to I just want to have the warning the heads up that's all
1: <laughs> you can go to friendsofdalnavert.ca to get tickets for Miracle on 34th Street a live radio play once again it's happening tomorrow night at 7 o'clock and then uh, what time on uh,
7: Friday is it 7 on uh, each night Friday and Saturday as well and any then-
1: parking tips
7: Parking. We have parking at the museum. Um, so we have a free parking lot just north of the museum on the north side of the wall. And then there's street parking as well that's free after 530.
1: All right. Charlene Van Buchenhout from Dalnavert Museum. Thank you so much for the visit. We well, appreciate it.
7: Thank you for having me.
1: Greg Mackling, we want to talk about a former NHL player and some making some big news this week.
0: Yeah, former NHL player who spent his post-playing days, and I used the word retirement, or I didn't use the word retirement there on purpose. He spent his post-playing days bringing awareness to an issue that before he rollerbladed across Canada, many of us were unaware of. He created a course that if you've ever volunteered to coach in our province and Pretty much every province in our country, you have taken it. It is called respect and sport. This is just the tip of the iceberg of the things Sheldon Kennedy has done to help keep our children from experiencing what he and our next guest experienced in their youth, Loren.
2: Yeah, and the person we're going to speak to next, his name is Greg Gil-Hooley. He is, of course, the author of I Am Nobody, confronting the abusive coach who stole my life. That coach is Graham James, and his story is similar to Sheldon Kennedy's for that reason. Sheldon's worked so hard to bring light to this issue and hope to people and survivors. Yesterday, he announced a retirement of sorts from his child advocacy center and from the very public life he has led for more than two decades. And he has a statement that he said, Greg, that essentially said he needs to take some time For
0: himself, Yeah. And it reads in part for the past several months, I've had ongoing and emotional conversations with my family and close friends. They've been a great support. And through this process, I've decided to remove my name from the Sheldon Kennedy Child Advocacy Center. I always preach to others that first and foremost, they need to take care of their own mental health and find balance in their lives. And I now need to take my own advice.
2: So on the phone with us now is Greg Gilhooly, who came to know Sheldon over the years. Thanks for taking the time to chat with
8: us, Greg. Oh, thanks very much for having me.
2: Well, in your, I, I'll let you explain what you were feeling yesterday when you heard this, but you did tweet in part, Sheldon Kennedy was strong when I couldn't be. He fought our battles first on his own. It was never as easy as he made it look to others with his strength and grace, and he has done enough. We have taken enough from him. I think that sums it up nicely, but there's, of course, so much more to be said about him and his work.
8: I was incredibly happy when I, I read Sheldon's note yesterday. I, I don't want to pretend that I know Sheldon better than most, but having been through what Sheldon has been through and, and having had the opportunity to get to know him over the years, I, I have seen just how difficult it has been to have been him. He has literally been the, the name and the face in the fight against child sexual abuse in this country. And he has been given a platform to do an inordinate amount of good. But with all of that good comes an incredible responsibility, an incredible commitment of time, and an incredible need to remain open and accessible to, to the rest who have gone through what he's gone through. And, and so while it has been wonderful for us to have helped Sheldon in our lives to, to lean on and, and to use to help us move forward... I, I can only imagine a minuscule amount of the stress and obligation and pressure he must have felt over the past 23 years.
0: Greg, uh, part of the healing process has to... As to getting over any traumatic event, uh, it, it's a different road for every individual, but there are certain bridges that one needs to, to cross. Do you think, Sheldon, and once again, it, it's pel- speculation on our part, but it's my feeling that, that Sheldon may be allowed to cross some of these bridges privately now that he wasn't able to do as he relived this story and shared it so freely for so long.
8: I think that's that, that's very insightful. I mean, think about it. From the moment Sheldon told the world about what happened to him in the legal proceeding against Graham James, that was a massive news story, and he was the name and the face on that news story. He went back to play in the NHL. He retired and then uh, rollerbladed across the country to raise money for survivors. And after that, he went through his process always in the public eye. And, and you're absolutely right to, to hit on that. He has had to deal with everything in public, and he just wants some space is, is what, what I took from the note. I, I didn't glean anything other than the fact that you're absolutely right. Sheldon needs to go through his process now behind closed doors, and Sheldon needs to lead his life.
1: Greg, is there any fear? And I, by by posing this question, I don't want to imply that this is what I believe. But is there any possibility that there could be, I don't, maybe even a backlash or some sort of negative reaction from people suggesting that he's turning his back on people who might need help?
8: Oh, I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, look, there are always wingnuts out there, and if you ever read the the, the letters to the editor or, or comments on on web articles, you know there are wingnuts out there who who may say that. But but my sense is that Sheldon has done so much and has built such a, a wealth of goodwill behind both his name and his actions that, that I, for the life of me, can't imagine anyone turning uh, uh, their, their backs on Sheldon at this point.
2: What do we take away from the story that he has shared with us so many times and just his willingness to do it publicly? If there's something to be learned from that, Greg, what would it be for you?
8: Well, I, I think a story of selflessness. I mean, think about what Sheldon has been through. He, he, he is the the poster boy for the difficult struggle that a survivor or victim go, goes through coming out of this. He went in and out of rehab 10 times at least uh, in, in the course of, of his recovery to, to get to the point where he is. And he has shown no shame in sharing his story and, in fact, has been willing to share his story to let everyone understand just how difficult a process this can be. So I I, I see in in Sheldon a, a very important lesson that never be too proud to hide your struggles if in telling your story other people can take strength from it.
1: Greg, you've been very uh, forthcoming in how public you've been with your story. Have you ever found that it's taken a toll on you to be so public with uh, telling the world what you experienced?
8: Oh, yeah, look, it's it's far harder than it looks. First, never equate what what I've had to deal with with what Sheldon has had to deal with, and I'm not scolding you when I say that. I, I just I I feel very uncomfortable even being mentioned in the same sentence as Sheldon because he went first and. He fought the fight 23 years ago when the world was a very different place, and he was the first to come forward. And, and most in the hockey world were supporting Graham James when stories about Sheldon came forward. He was just the, the wild, child, drunk, addict, uh, trouble hockey player making up a story. Um, but but I, I can say from, from personal experience that it's, it's easy to build your strength and tell your story in public, and then all you want to do is hide behind a closed door and, and just recover from the telling of your story. So, so this again is is why I marvel at at Sheldon's strength and why I would always check in with him to make sure that he was okay because I knew that if it was tough for me to do what I was doing, it it, it had to have been you know, exponentially more difficult for Sheldon to do what he was doing.
0: You know, Greg, I always like to try and find lessons and what the public f- figures like yourself and Sheldon have gone through for, for others. And we've been telling the story about the member of the Canadian Armed Forces who, who not only lost a child in a tragic automobile a- accident, but also lost her leg and has been been fighting with Veterans Affairs for almost a dozen years, to have them pay for her prosthetic leg. And off off air, I was commenting to Loren and Brett this whole idea of, you know, these organizations, insurance companies, whichever organization you might be dealing with, implore you to move on in these situations, yet they they don't allow you to do so. They, they want you to relive and retell the story in order to justify your existence and your complaint and what you're going through. It's, it's horribly traumatic every single time you do that. How how do you manage to do that?
8: Well, I, I think it, it it absolutely is. What you, what you see is absolutely correct, and, and that the 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 impact of the events linger long after, and they they can be actually not only exacerbated but worsened. Uh, and I I think the the way to get through that that what I have done like all of us are going to be different, but what what I have tried to do is is always keep focused on the fact that there's got to be a way out of this because the alternative just isn't acceptable. And so as frustrating as it gets, and it can be incredibly frustrating and it's not always a positive road forward in in your fight against whatever it is you're, you're fighting against or struggling against. I can't imagine what it's like to fight an an insurance company for as long as this woman has um, and and a government and and all of that. But you you just, you have to, And, and the lesson is, you can't give up because you never know if the win comes tomorrow. You just you can't give up. Tomorrow is another day. And the, the lesson to take from that story and from Sheldon is that there are incredibly strong people out there who have been able to show themselves to be far stronger than they themselves probably even recognized. Take a look at who Sheldon Kennedy was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and who Sheldon Kennedy is now. He has fought the fight on a daily basis, gotten better every day, or at least trended positively over the course every day.
1: Greg Ilhuli is the author of I Am Nobody, Confronting the Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
8: Oh, thanks very much for having me, team.
1: And once again, former NHL player and abuse survivor Sheldon Kennedy wants his name removed from a child advocacy center he founded. He was among the first to speak out about how he was sexually abused by his junior hockey coach, Graham James.